I trust that the irony is not lost on us. We have uh, been discussing matters of the great loss of Baptist history in our previous time together and that we are coming now to seek to regain some of that that we have lost through our own neglect. Having come in our last lecture to the threshold, as it were, of John's baptism in the New Testament, I would propose today that we step across that threshold and into the room of what must be justly and properly called by the name baptism as it is found in the gospel records beginning with John the Baptist. While it is not central to the study that I've been requested to pursue because it is central to a proper understanding of that ordinance as established in the New Testament, I feel I must say something in relation to what is commonly termed the mode of baptism. And so we shall take notice of that shortly. Most directly, though, we are tasked with the consideration of the nature and the intent of John's baptism. Its relationship to the baptism practiced by the Lord himself through his disciples during his earthly ministry and then established by his divine command prior to his ascension. Consideration then must also be given to the subsequent obedience to this ordinance in the earliest history of the church as we find it in the book of Acts. Repeating, if you will bear with me, repeating my observation from the first lecture, the limitations of time will prevent any extended discussion of these points, although each might easily have a lengthy course of study devoted to it. The best that I may hope to do today is to make some suggestive analysis on the topics and then recommend some additional resources should you desire to pursue the subject further. You will recall that much was said in the previous lecture regarding the washings found in both the Old Testament law and later in extra-biblical Jewish tradition, extending into the very period of Christ's ministry. Leaving aside those washings that must rightly be classed under our Lord's rebuke as the commandments of men, that is, those extra-biblical traditions developed by the Jews over that period of silence, I remind you of the two leading features that we brought forward of those washings 
instituted by Jehovah's command under the law. That is their repetitive nature. They were to be often repeated. And their purpose, that is cleansing from ceremonial uncleanness. Allow me again to quote from what was said in our last lecture concerning this. It was not simply an insignificant feature, but rather of the very essence of the commands themselves that these washings were to be repeated. At every service in the tabernacle, at every bodily issue, at every month, at every time leprosy was cleansed, the nature of the command that established them required their frequent recurrence. Then secondly, they were ordained, as we said, for ceremonial uncleanness. The priest was to be clean before he could minister. The one defiled by disease or by issue or by contact with the dead must wash before they could participate again in the community and ritual of Israel. These were a living parable meant to teach as graphically as did the sacrifices that pollution must be cleansed. The significance of these features cannot be too much insisted upon because it sets them in bright contrast to that baptism introduced to us in the very opening of the gospel records. With that clearly, I hope, in our minds, the subject of New Testament baptism can be set in its proper context and import. Consider with me for a moment the biblical and historical circumstances in which this baptism and the Baptist, as he is called, appear on the scene. Since from the closing words of Malachi's prophecy, there have been four centuries of revelatory silence. No inspired prophet has spoken to Israel's remnant dwelling in Judea for nearly twice the number of years that our own nation has even been in existence. 400 years. Although providentially preserved as a people, Jehovah has not communicated to them for ten generations. Instead, oppressive tradition stepped forward to fill the void. An overwhelming body of religious legislation, external regulation bewildering in its extent, and much of it bordering on the absurd. You remember, do you not, Christ's judgment of all of it. They bind heavy burdens and grievous to be born, and lay them on men's shoulders. 
But then, then, the Gospels burst forth with a series of angelic visitations announcing all things being in readiness for the appearance of Messiah to His people. A priest of the temple, a young Jewish woman, shepherds, all hear this angelic word, fear not. Judea and Galilee together were astir with the reports we find in Luke 1 and verse 65. But after this brief excitement, silence settles once more upon the land as it waits, waiting, as we find from the Scripture, as the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of His showing unto Israel. It is perhaps impossible for us at such a distance of time and being Gentiles at such a difference of national history for us to fully appreciate the startling nature of the circumstances of John's appearance and ministry in Israel. It was altogether a new thing. And necessary it be startling, for it was intended to declare the beginnings of the new covenant proclaimed to Israel by the prophet Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31. Most of us, I fear, most of us largely miss the infinite significance of Mark's inspired declaration in the first verse of his gospel. We read in Mark 1 and verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We assign to the words mere chronological value when they are meant to announce not the beginning as we read it in the English, but as it is in the Greek, beginning. It is the, as it is known, anarthrous construction, that is, without the definite article. Which construction would have immediately focused the Greek mind on the nature, the quality, the character of this substantive beginning, said Mark. It could have been as properly perhaps translated here, fulfillment. Because Mark proceeds in the next two verses to declare that this beginning was in reality the culmination. Now, he said, now did all the words of the prophets begin to be gloriously fulfilled in the Baptist and in the Messiah. Read with me. As in the beginning of the Gospel, beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before me, thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, 
Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Beginning. Fulfillment. Surely it is difficult for us to grasp what that would have meant to the Jew of that day. The announcement that this beginning was the fulfillment of the long-awaited prophecy. But I must hasten. John is first introduced to us in the Gospel records as a preacher. A preacher of repentance. Mark 1 and verse 4. John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Similarly in Mark chapter, uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1 and 2. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so again in Luke chapter 3, we find this account of him, verse 3, and it, and he came into all the country about Jordan preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. To this preaching ministry was added a commission to baptize all such as gave evidence and public confession of that repentance he preached. Matthew 3 and verse 6, we read, picking up in verse 5, They then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. So he preached repentance. He was commissioned to baptize those who obeyed the command of repentance, but not, not of repentance only, but also of faith in Christ. The gospel accounts sufficiently testify to these two principles of John's preaching, and it is further sealed by Paul's testimony of John in Acts 19, verse 4, where Paul says, Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So his preaching was not simply repentance. It was a call, a command to repentance and faith in Christ. Thus John's message and John's ministry was the initiation of that new thing promised by the prophets and can be rightly understood only as an integral part of that gospel dispensation, as we might call it. To quote Dr. Baldwin, to, pre to prepare the Savior's way by making ready a people for Him, by turning the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, thus proves John 
to be a minister of the new dispensation. Further, his practice of baptism was wholly unconnected with the law in its ceremonial and civil aspects. Again, Dr. Baldwin, he was not sent to enforce obedience to the Jewish ritual, but to prepare the way for the Son of God. Unquote. John, John's ministry was strange enough to the religious leaders seeing this desert dweller come and proclaim a message of repentance of which they saw no need whatsoever. But clearly it was far more troubling to them that he should introduce an altogether new practice for the public demonstration of that personal repentance and faith. Little wonder, little wonder then that the Pharisees interrogated him thusly. Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet, John 1, verse 25, as if to say to him, Who are you to appoint new rites for Israel, never seen nor approved by the authorities? The good Dr. Gill observed concerning this question of the Pharisees, quote, It is also evident from hence that no such practice had obtained before among them, or they would not have been alarmed at it as they were, nor would they have troubled themselves to have sent after John and inquire of him who he was that should practice in this manner, unquote. But you see, John had divine authority for all that he did. As he later explained, John chapter 1 again, and verse 33, John speaking in the context of his identification of Christ, the Lamb of God, John chapter 1, verse 33, And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. John had divine authority for his preaching and for his baptizing. He, he claimed that for himself under the inspired record, he that sent me to baptize with water. And it wasn't the Jews, it wasn't the Sanhedrin, it wasn't the religious leaders, because he was in the deserts until the day of his showing unto Israel. He received that commission from God himself to baptize. This brings us then to the leading features of this divinely appointed baptism. First, it was even by the admission of his opponents, the Pharisees, 
the Sadducees, the religious leaders, even by the admission of his opponents, a practice wholly new and without precedent in law or tradition. Nothing commanded in the law, nothing promoted by the fabrications of tradition, none of these could claim to be the ancestor to John's baptism. It came, as we have pointed out already, it came as a sovereign mandate direct from the throne of heaven. Second feature. It's indispensable prerequisite stated repeatedly by John himself. It's indispensable prerequisite was a confessed repentance from sin and a confessed faith in the coming Messiah. John expressly forbid and excluded any from this ordinance, even those who by their parentage were participants in the commonwealth of Israel. Mark that well. Those who were by common parentage descendants of the elders of Israel, even these were excluded expressly if they gave no evidence of such obedience to the divine command. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. And you will see John's preaching on this very subject. Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. John expressly forbid and excluded any other than those who brought forth fruits, meat, for repentance from this baptism. Third, the act itself, that is the act of baptism itself, was an entire immersion of the subject in water. Not for the purposes of washing, ritual or otherwise, from uncleanness, but for a public testimony of that person's obedience to John's message, repent and believe. Matthew 3, 5 through 6. We read it already. Then went out to him Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. It was an immersion for the purpose of a public testimony of that person's obedience 
to John's message to repent and to believe. And it is just here that we must say a few words concerning the question of mode. M-O-D-E. We have asserted just now that John's baptism was an entire immersion. To this, most honest readers of the scripture, even Paedobaptists, most honest readers of the scripture cannot object, although some will not shrink from quibbling. The question, the question they assert is whether other modes and with that, though unstated in the proposition, whether other valid subjects there are to the ordinance, because they're always interconnected, you understand. <clears throat> the question they assert is whether other modes, and that is the entering wedge they drive, this matter of mode. To that, none, I think, have better answered than Dr. Baldwin. And so you will, I trust, allow me to quote at some length from him. <clears throat> but, says another, writing to Dr. Baldwin, but, says another, the dispute is not about baptism itself, but only about a mere mode of baptism. Very well. Let it be mode if we can only understand each other. We shall therefore use the term mode, not meaning by it to concede that there are different modes equally valid, but as being best adapted to explain different views of the two denominations. The question, says Mr. Worcester, properly between us is not this, whether any were baptized in the day of Christ and his apostles by immersion or dipping, but it is precisely this, says Mr. Worcester, whether immersion or dipping be the only valid mode of baptism. If Mr. Worcester himself can, quote, touch the points of real difference between us and them, a quote from Samuel Worcester himself, and this is an accurate statement of one of them, it will narrow the ground of controversy considerably. By this statement, it will, it will be seen that if it be not a question between us and them, whether some were baptized in the day, days of Christ and his apostles by immersion, then it must be a conceded point that there were some immersed at that period. And if it be not a question whether immersion or dipping be a valid mode of baptism, but whether it be the only valid mode, then immersion is unquestionably a valid mode. The point of difference is here so nicely touched as to leave our practice on the firm basis of apostolic authority. Because 
Mr. Worcester has conceded the field that immersion is a valid mode and that some were immersed in the days of John the Baptist and Christ. Let the author, that is, the author of his opponent, let the author before us prove sprinkling to be equally valid and there will be no question about that. It will then be acknowledged by us as well as them that both are valid. That immersion is an apostolic valid mode is as capable of proof as any other event placed at that distance. But it may be asked, how is it proved? We answer, first, from a fair and candid construction of scripture testimony respecting the ordinance. Second, from the most authentic ecclesiastical history. And third, we also prove it from the full and fair concessions of many of the most learned and pious Pedobaptists themselves. After furnishing all this kind of proof in the most ample and plenary manner, our opponents insist we must also disprove their mode. Prove the negative. We can see no propriety in such a demand, nor shall we undertake it. Any further than that the proving of our own will disprove theirs. If they practice sprinkling for baptism, they certainly ought to exhibit proof of its validity. Perhaps all that needs to be said concerning mode. And so you will understand when we are driven to the use of the term mode, it is not a term of our choosing, but a term necessary perhaps in the debate. But we return to those features we observed a moment ago. I hope it will now be more evident to you why we belabored so much the characteristics of those former washings in order thus to demonstrate clearly the distinct nature of the gospel ordinance. John's baptism, in distinction from all that went before it, all that was practiced alongside of it in John's and Christ's day, and all, whatever it may have been, that came after it, John's baptism was indeed wholly different from all these. It was first required of all who would identify with that kingdom that he preached that was now at hand. It was required only of those who voluntarily submitted to the demands of that kingdom, that is, the demands of repentance and faith. It was required of all, but it was required of only. You see the distinction, but the connection. And third, its dispensable prerequisite was 
repentance, and faith. No other would do. There must be a confessed repentance. There must be a confessed faith in Christ. No other would suffice. And, as we said, it was an immersion of the entire person in water as a symbol of those spiritual realities that the individual professed to be a partaker of. I have thus far referred to this ordinance as John's baptism. A term not incorrect, for it was so called by Christ himself. You remember when he was in the midst of the Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders questioning him. He said, I have a question for you. The baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or of men? So Christ himself referred to it as John's baptism. But more broadly, we ought perhaps to denominate it New Testament baptism, Christian baptism, or perhaps to borrow freely from the title of Dr. Baldwin's work, we ought to call it the baptism of believers only. For its essence is that described by all three of the names we have just given to it. It was one and the same with that baptism. Let me start over with the senses. It was one and the same with that baptism performed by Christ's disciples. John chapter 3. Starting in verse 22. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea. And there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Enon near, near to Salim because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. Had some defect or distinction attended John's baptism, the inspired record surely would not have failed to note such a change. Nor would it have been likely that Christ himself would have permitted John to baptize him without first correcting the practice. We read, however, of no such correction or improvement in the scripture but rather is the scene set before us in these two verses from John chapter 3 and again in John 4. Let me read the first two verses there. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. The scene set before us in these verses is one of a most agreeable co-laboring. John and Christ's disciples, 
working harmoniously nearby to one another in gospel preaching and in baptizing. I am pleased to report that Mr. Calvin himself concurs in this. The ministry of John, he said, was altogether the same which was afterwards committed to the apostles. For the different hands wherewith it was administered make not the baptism different, but the same doctrine showeth it to be the same baptism. John and the apostles agree in one doctrine, both baptized into repentance, both into the forgiveness of sins, both into the name of Christ, unquote. The only change, if change it may be called, is that change ordained by Christ as head to his church represented in his command to his disciples in Matthew 28. And you will recall in that passage we hear from the Lord's lips, you are to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The form of administration henceforth would be in the name of the three persons of the Godhead. Dr. Baldwin once more helps us by way of explanation. Quote, Christ, before his resurrection, commissioned his disciples to baptize. John 4 and verse 2. Although it was limited to the seed of Abraham. This being admitted, it will follow that the command given to the disciples to teach and baptize all nations was not a new commission but the enlargement of one which had been previously given. When the disciples were first sent out to preach, they were limited to the lost sheep of Israel. They were forbid to go into the way of the Gentiles or into any city of the Samaritans. After Christ rose from the dead, he enlarged the commission before given to his disciples. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth, said the risen Savior. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them. But would it not be as reasonable to suppose that by virtue of this enlarged commission, they preached a different gospel? as that they administered a different baptism in consequence of it. In fact, ending Dr. Baldwin's quote, in fact, Christ's disciples also must have learned of baptism from and been baptized by John himself, as the learned Matthew Poole observes, quote, it is evident that the apostles themselves were only baptized with the baptism of John, for there were none else to baptize. It is also then evident 
that the baptism practiced by the apostles after Christ's ascension was the same as that performed by John and by them during the years of Christ's earthly ministry. When the day of Pentecost, we read, was fully come, in obedience to their commission from Christ, the gospel was preached. Their hearers were, we are told, pricked in their heart. The resulting scene was nearly an echo of that which occurred beside Jordan almost four years previous. Remember the words. Luke chapter 3. Verse, verse 3. Speaking of John, and he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And then moving to verse 10. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and saith unto them, commanding them their duty. Turn then to Acts in chapter 2. Verse 38. I'm sorry, verse 37. Now, Peter has been preaching the gospel. He concludes his message and in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? The very same words that John's hearers had asked. Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Of that baptism recorded in Acts, there can be no doubt it was the same as that they as that the apostles received at the hands of John, and which they had before themselves administered, only with the Lord's instruction to immerse in the name of the Trinity. Therefore, and thenceforth, every scripture account of baptism bears the same hallmarks as that of John's. Immersion after a confession of repentance and faith. If that faith now in the book of Acts, if that faith now look back to a completed atonement, rather than forward as that which characterized John's preaching, the act was yet identical in its administration and in its import. The eunuch's conversion, you will remember the account of the eunuch's conversion. Acts chapter 8, verse 38. 
And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, In the eunuch's conversion, in Paul's descriptions of it, Romans 6, verse 4, Colossians 2, and verse 12, he uses the same, nearly the same words that we are buried in baptism. All of these things testify to the manner and the significance of the ordinance. Thus has it come down to us in its original simplicity and with this sublime contemplation. By this ordinance, rightly administered, have multitudes, multitudes through 20 centuries given testimony to fellow saints and wandering sinners of the gospel's power, the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. This baptism has been and always is one. From the time that it was instructed to John to baptize until this hour. One brief question remains, and that is the subtle controversy that surrounds the distinctions that some allege appear in texts such as Acts chapter 8, verse 16, and chapter 19, and verse 3. These might as easily be passed over in silence as to answer the speculations of gainsayers, but a few words perhaps on them may suffice to settle the questions. It is first important to note that both of these instances referred to in these texts, Acts chapter 8, verse 16, we read this text, For as yet he, that is the Holy Spirit, was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And similarly, in Acts chapter 19 and verse 3, Paul speaking, and he said, <clears throat> well, let me back up to verse 2. He, Paul, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. <clears throat> it is important to note that both of these instances are, as they may be termed, first fruits of the gospel in their respective circumstances. The Samaritans in Acts 8 and those of Ephesus in Acts 19. The extension of the gospel according to the Lord's instruction 
that it spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. This extension of the gospel, though certain because of Christ's command and the power with which he endued his apostles and his church to fulfill it, though certain was nevertheless attended with no small skepticism, even among the believing Jews. For proof of this, you will remember Luke's account in Acts chapter 10 of the conversion of Cornelius and his household. We are told in the midst of that account from Luke in chapter 10 of their of Peter's preaching and the conversion of Cornelius and those of his household, this interesting word occurs. They of the circumcision which believed were astonished. Astonished. The Greek word there has in some places been translated, they were out of their minds. They were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. Similarly, in Acts 8, the Samaritans had been baptized by Philip upon their profession, but no miraculous gifts had attended it. And in Acts 19, the disciples at Ephesus, probably subsequently the beginnings of the church in that city, had also been baptized, we read, unto John's baptism, but had seen none of those signs as fell at Pentecost on the Samaritans or on Cornelius' household. Our study has acquitted, I hope, John's baptism from the charge of being anything other than that baptism divinely ordained to the church. That being so, the validity of that baptism is beyond question. There was no other additional baptism to be effective for the men of Acts 19, nor can there be any question as to the correctness of the baptism Philip administered at Samaria. The controverted phrase, baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, that we read in verse 16 of chapter 8 and verse 5 of chapter 19, is no more valid an objection to the validity of this baptism than what might be made against the eunuch's conversion. Because there is not a specific mention in his conversion of repentance being mixed with his profession of faith. If the baptism noted in Acts 19 was 
prospective, that is, it looked forward when it was performed. It was no less so for Christ's disciples at the time of their own baptism. And if the baptism of Acts chapter 8 was retrospective, that is, it looked back to Christ's completed atonement, when it was performed by Philip, it was nevertheless indisputably valid as demonstrated by the fact no mention is made that the apostles, Peter and John, when they arrived in Samaria, no mention is made that they rebaptized them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Which would have been necessary to correct some supposed defect in its previous administration by Philip. Their baptism was one and the same with John, with the disciples, with those who were baptized in Acts 2. The only question that remains is that regarding the extraordinary gifts that came at the laying on of the hands of Peter and John in Acts 8 and of Paul in Acts 19. That these extraordinary gifts long ago ceased is certain from the Scripture. Whatever the tireless labors of our Pentecostal friends attempt to prove that those extraordinary gifts were yet active during this period of the church's history is also certain. That there was a necessity for the maintaining of the unity of the church in this period of growth. That is, of demonstrating that all believers, Jew, Samaritan, Gentile alike, demonstrating that all believers, as Paul would later write, being many are one body. No more efficient means to this demonstration could there be than with each expansion to the Samaritans, to the Gentiles, to the regions beyond that all these expansions should partake as well of those extraordinary gifts that fell at Pentecost. By this, all, all believers, Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, are made, as Paul so fitly wrote, one new man in Christ, Ephesians 2 and verse 15. They were shown to be that is, fully believers as much as the Jews on the day of Pentecost, as much as the Samaritans in, under Philip's preaching, as much as the men of Ephesus who met with Paul. One new man. Thus each in their turn, by the hands of the apostles, receives the gift and all are shown to be one indeed, made nigh by the blood of Christ.
For so much concerning this subject, we are indeed indebted to the able treatment of it by Dr. Baldwin in not just this work, but in others. Should you wish to further pursue the study, I would commend to you the reading again of the baptism of believers only, as well his other large work entitled The Distinguishing Sentiments of the Baptists, written four years after the baptism of believers only. And should you wish to broaden your search, you might, of course, include the works of Dr. Gill on the subject, uh, not the least of which would be Infant Baptism, a part and pillar of popery, uh, as well as his Body of Divinity, in which he discusses, uh, as we noted in our last session, uh, he discusses the subject of Jewish proselyte baptism and renders his informed conclusion on that, but as well discusses at length in that work earlier the entire subject, the entire breadth, if you will, of his, of the subject of baptism. Uh, you might also consider Abraham Booth. Uh, his works, Pato Baptism Examined, a three-volume work in its final printing, uh, as well as his Apology for the Baptists, and perhaps some of you do have already uh, Alexander Carson's work, the, the, uh, the Scottish Presbyterian converted to Baptist. His work entitled Baptism in its Mode and Subjects. There's that mode word again. Um, all of these and several other Baptist writers offer a wealth of instruction on this doctrine so essential to the life and the prosperity of Baptists. But I would say again to you as we conclude, this baptism as we have it in the beginning of the gospel is one and the same distinct from all, made to be a demonstration of that repentance and faith in Christ required of every and all who come seeking this ordinance. And it will be so until the last believer is perhaps baptized and Christ returns to receive his people unto himself. All right, I hope that answers all of the questions uh, that I had raised, and I did raise them intentionally three or four weeks ago. If that answers those questions. A lot of material there. Maybe we'll have to go back and I take it in smaller bites and digest it. A lot of material there. If you have not already read many of the works that John referred to and studied this subject for yourself before, then in that one brief lecture there is a lot of material. Uh, but it, uh, the conclusion that he gave you there at the end 
that is the sum, sum of it all. That is the sum of it all. That the baptism of John was a, was, uh, I, I liked his use of the term New Testament baptism. Just referring to everything from John forward, one baptism, all the same. And, uh, he used the term New Testament baptism rather than Christian or whatever other term we apply. Huge subject, great subject, and it's important for us because we are Baptist. Therein is our distinction.